You are live with Get Connected. Mike Agarbo here with John Beeler. It's a new year and we are trying to start it off with a bang. Our show is all about technology, digital living, smart homes, smartphones, and uh, this show is going to be great. We're actually talking with a real life rocket scientist <laughs> this, this episode uh, down in California about the new uh, moon missions uh, that NASA is uh, launching and the supercomputers that they're using to make that all happen. So if you're into rockets and space and supercomputers, you got to stay tuned uh, for that interview. It is all kinds of awesome. We'll also be talking about blockchain technology for vaccine distribution. And John, this is a big issue right now. You know, we see it in a lot of places, Europe, the US, uh, you know, Canada is a little bit better, but just getting the vaccine to the areas and the people to get it in the, in the arms of people is proving to be a big logistical nightmare. Yeah, it's a fascinating logistical problem that I think a lot of people don't realize is a problem. Uh, especially with things like the vaccines that require special refrigeration and stuff like that, they need to really be able to sort of track where it's been and where it's going uh, to make sure that it hasn't been left out on the counter, uh, so to speak. Well, we'll be talking with uh, a great guest. Uh, his name is Dr. David Wang. He's the chief technical uh, officer uh, that uh, is working on this uh, over at uh, MCG, uh, a Canadian uh, company. But uh, let's uh, talk about uh, some of the tech news, uh, John, that we're uh, following uh, right now. And this this first one was kind of funny for me, John. Uh, do you remember Apple launched their new iPhone 12s this year, late this year? And the big kerfuffle was that they don't include a charger in the box anymore. And Apple's argument was that this was for eco reasons. There are literally hundreds of millions of chargers already out there. And why include another one that uh, will eventually, you know, quickly go into a landfill when you probably already have 10 of these things in your house? Yeah, they took a lot of heat for that. But and companies like Samsung and a few other like Show Me, they were mocking Apple for this, and they made ads saying, "Hey, you know, you get that stuff with our phones." Well, uh, it looks like Samsung, for example, is taking down a lot of those ads now, and the reason is that most of these companies now are going to be following Apple. Show Me, the big Chinese smartphone manufacturer, basically has. Uh, come out and said uh, that they won't be including chargers in their box anymore. And it looks like Samsung is going to follow suit. I hate to be the Apple guy because normally that's Graham, but um, everybody's following Apple on this. Like it, it makes a lot of sense. The boxes are smaller. You don't have a bunch of crap. I mean, it, for the most part, anytime I would sell an iPhone, I would still have that original charger and the cable in <laughs> totally, the box. Totally right. Un, unused. Well, I, I, I applaud Apple for that, but it, it's kind of funny because Apple in a lot of ways kind of leads on certain aspects of this. Do you remember when they did away with the headphone jack? Yeah. People went crazy and there's still a lot of uh, purists out there that still want their headphone jack. But I remember uh, a lot of the big guys, their competitors made fun of Apple once again. Mm -hmm. And yep. and what happened, John? They all got rid of the headphone jack eventually. I wonder what's going to, what are we going to lose next? <laughs> that well, Apple's going to do first and everyone's going to follow. Oh, that's a, it's a good question. Maybe they'll get rid of the charging port and go fully wireless one day. It, it kind of makes sense. I can't think of the last time I actually plugged my phone in other than in my car because I don't have wireless CarPlay. But 
Um, yeah, I have wireless chargers throughout my house. I don't even need a cord. I think we're a ways away, but I, I bet in 10 years, everything will be wireless. And, you know, we'll even have wireless pads built into, you know, we've talked about this, uh, tables and, and desks and even in, in restaurants and the bars and, and what have you. Let's move on to some of the other stories uh, that we're uh, following. John, you're a, a drone guy uh, yeah. and quite skilled at it. Uh, but uh, this is an interesting story out of the U.S. In 2023, you won't be able to fly most drones in the U.S. without broadcasting your location. Yeah, this is a really interesting uh, development because the biggest problem that a lot of, um, uh, let's say, organizations have is that if if a drone was to enter, say, the airport's airspace, they don't know where the pilot is. They know where the drone is. They know it's where it's not supposed to be, but they don't know where the pilot is. Is the pilot on the premises? Is he outside and he's flown it into that airspace? So this new rule will basically require you as a pilot to broadcast your actual location to uh, in connection with the drone. What isn't clear yet is how that's going to happen. Because a lot of times these drones, they have an app that's controlling them. So in theory, that app could be that broadcast thing. And then presumably the, uh, say, an airport, for example, or, or a building manager, whoever needs to sort of track their airspace, they would be able to see a list of who's in their space right now. Yeah. But they've, the FAA has kind of left it up to the drone manufacturers to figure that stuff out and how they can comply. So we're not quite sure what that exactly means yet. Um, but the idea is that it gives them the real-time ability to find you if you're a pilot that's sort of in the wrong place uh, and presumably get you to stop. Well, I guess the idea is uh, that it's a safety issue, which I, I agree with because there's a lot of stupid drone uh, owners out there that are flying these things uh, not in a safe uh, manner, but uh, it's going to get to a point where, yes, you will have uh, a drone ID. The authorities will be able to know exactly what drones are in the area, who owns them as well. And eventually, uh, I think it uh, uh, will give them the ability to, ability to shut them down as well, from my understanding. Yeah, I, I think the, the big problem is, though, is that it's very easy to build a drone from parts that yeah. doesn't comply with any of this stuff. And this is kind of like if you think about it in like say you know the the handgun market the you know the bad guys are are always going to have guns without serial numbers on them yeah right because they're going to get them illegally and it's easy enough to fly a drone so this is really kind of penalizing the the good pilots that will you know be proper and do that the, these aren't the pilots that are going to be flying over an airport yeah or, or harassing a building uh, occupants, that type of thing. The people that are going to be doing that aren't going to have a registered drone. They're probably not even going to be registered pilots. It'll be interesting to see how that uh, all shakes uh, out up here in Canada as well. I'm, I'm sure they'll probably introduce some uh, sim- similar type of uh, rules. Uh, John, I'm a Tesla owner, and uh, every holiday season, uh, Elon Musk uh, always gives us a little Christmas present, uh, the holiday update, they call it. And uh, this year was uh, no exception. Uh, so I downloaded the the latest uh, version to my car. And that's kind of the cool thing about Teslas. You can get all these updates uh, over the air. There's built-in data uh, connections uh, into the car uh, so that you can get the, the security ones, the important ones over cellular. And that's included in the ownership of the car. Uh, but for the bigger ones, uh, you do that over Wi-Fi when you get home. I got three new games, including Solitaire. 
which I know is funny. They've got really cool games, but I'm most excited about being able to play solitaire in my car. But for uh, some Tesla owners, and unfortunately my car doesn't fit into this category, they have a new boombox feature. And you've probably heard of this. Uh, Essentially, you can use the speakers that are kind of on the outside of the car uh, to make noises. And that's uh, one of the the new rules uh, that uh, uh, the transportation authorities have uh, instituted that if cars, electric cars are going less than, uh, I think, is it 30 miles an hour or 30 kilometers an hour? They have to make a noise. 30 kilometers an hour, yeah. Yeah, they have to make a noise because they're silent. Mine does. Mine has the speakers. It makes like a Jetson sound as I drive by slowly. Yeah, mine doesn't. Uh, So I don't know how that's going to work in in the future here, but uh, for the Tesla owners that do, uh, not only will it make a sound, you can actually customize which sounds. And I guess the big one for a lot of people is you can make farting noises with your car. Of course. I don't know who would do that. I can do that on the inside of my car with my <laughs> horn. You know, there's a button I Lunch. can... Yeah. Or if someone sits down in the passenger seat, in the front passenger seat, I can have it automatically make a, a farting noise as well. I'm surprised you haven't done that to me yet. No, you know, it got old really fast. <laughs> I used it once on my wife and that was about it. <laughs> then, then, yeah, never, never again. Want to give a quick shout out to our contest in January here. We're starting off giving away a Yubi key. This is a high-end hardware security key that you can plug into your laptop, iPhone or Android phone or tablet for that matter, that brings your security to the next level. Better than passwords, better than two-factor authentication. This uh, will make sure that all your accounts, be that banking, social media, whatever, have that extra layer of security. If you want a chance to win, visit our website, getconnectedmedia.com. Hit the newsletter tab, and they have all the instructions there on what you need to do to uh, enter. And once you're entered in, you are subscribed to all of our contests that we are going to be running this year. We are giving away thousands of dollars in tech prizes, and there's always some good uh, gadgets and and gear that uh, uh, we have in the contest. Again, getconnectedmedia.com is the place that you want to go. When we come back from the break, lots of great stuff to talk about. Later on, we'll be talking to an actual NASA rocket scientist about the new Artemis missions uh, coming up to bring man back to the moon. Up next, blockchain technology in making sure that the COVID-19 vaccine distribution is kept safe and transparent. Back after this. You are back with Get Connected. Mike and John here. Uh, We're going to talk about the vaccine now and when it comes to Getting the vaccine, it's all about the distribution. To help us understand uh, what this is all about and uh, you know how they're protecting against it, we've uh, got a great guest. His name is Dr. David Wang. He's a CTO at MCG and adjunct professor of the Department of Electrical and Computer Engineering over at UBC, the University of British Columbia. Thanks for uh, join, uh, joining us today. Thank you. There's a lot of information that we have to understand about the distribution of this vaccine and the security and transparency of that that information. For example, the Pfizer vaccine has to be stored at extremely low temperatures. How do we make sure that that information is secure and gets to the right people? But uh, basically, we want to make the data be be transparent to the public. And then we do not want the people to hide their mistakes. For example, you know, the Pfizer vaccine need to be uh, preserved in a very extremely low temperature. But how about the uh, car driver just uh, forgot a 
just uh, just forgot to turn on the uh, refrigerator, okay, or just uh, shut on this uh, refrigerator uh, by accident. And then the, the distribution company, okay, may want to just um, uh, make up their uh, mistake and change the data in their um, in their owning database. So that will be a disaster, right? And the um, so that's the potentially the vulnerability in the existing uh, database system, right? That, no, that's fascinating. So if the driver forgets to refrigerate the truck and then tries to change that data afterwards because he doesn't want to get in trouble, uh, you know, essentially those vac- vaccines uh, would be toast. Well, that's what I was wondering. What is the implication of that? Because if someone does mishandle it, if you will, yeah. uh, is it going to be spoiled? And like, will, will the people that are administering these things, will they know you know, you can tell when you leave chicken out <laughs> and it goes bad. This is a very different thing. So yeah. um, that's been one of my questions about this requirement with the Pfizer vaccine. Yeah, that's uh, interesting. Um, uh, so, Dr. Wang, the, uh, the the blockchain technology, you know, that's sometimes a hard thing for people to understand. Um, like, how, how is it uh, implemented in practice? So the uh, the blockchain system we, we we call the blockchain system also the distributed ledger. So it is not owned by one single company. It can be owned by the public. Maybe uh, everyone who has a computer can be uh, uh, can uh, can be part of the infrastructure to host the data. So basically, it's the data is not just saved in one computer. The, uh, you have uh, a lot of copies, okay, saved in a lot of ways, okay, in your computer, in anybody's uh, computer, anyone's computer. So changing one piece of copy does not affect others. And then eventually, then we want to trust the uh, copy that believed by the majority, right? So that's the, uh, the base idea of the uh, blockchain. And then uh, for those uh, counterparties in the supply chain, especially in the cold chain in our context, then we have the uh, data saved by Pfizer, by the distributor, by government, by even the uh, clinic or hospital, so that uh, even the distributor want to change some data in their copy, it does not affect the other copies. How easy or difficult is it to implement that technology into the supply chain? Oh, it's it is it, uh, not very difficult. Uh, so we have the blockchain has been studied over the the last decade, okay. And then we have the very good infrastructure in terms of the Bitcoin or Ethereum, and then um, we 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 also have the smart contract. Smart contract is just a piece of code and it can be executable anywhere in all of those um, uh, the, the the stakeholders, okay, the data holders. So uh, we are actually uh, implementing the system, and the uh, the first system will go online in the um, early January. You talked about the public a- uh, aspect of blockchain technology. No one owns it. That that could be a strength. Is that a weakness as well? You know, don't these big corporations and governments want to have control of that? Yeah. So yeah. So the um, the the idea is that the government want to just have the uh, auditing uh, functionality. And then uh, the data, okay, the beautiful thing about the blockchain is that you can save the encrypted data on the blockchain. You do not need to, uh, for example, I'm, I'm Pfizer. I do not want to expose my uh, productivity, okay, of the, uh, the, the, the vaccine. I can just uh, uh, save the, uh, the encrypted data, okay, in the, in the, 
uh, blockchain, and then uh, the when the when the uh, government want to audit my data, then uh, somehow we can use, for example, the zero knowledge proof, some techniques to validate the data without the privacy leakage. So basically, the blockchain can protect both the privacy and the integrity. Tell us a little bit about uh, MCG, Modular Clinton Global. What are they all about? Yeah, so the MCG uh, is a company and try to uh, provide the uh, uh, trustworthiness on the data, especially for those uh, data transferred where they communicated between the um, counterparties in the business log in the business uh, logistics, because we are using, for example, the Internet of Things, and we have those uh, supply chain in the uh, vaccine uh, shipment. Uh, we want to try to deliver the, um, the the data to the customer, the supplier, to the government with the uh, uh, trustworthiness. So people can believe the data, people trust the data, so people can collaborate based on this data. We uh, are talking all about using blockchain technology when it comes to protecting the information uh, during the distribution of the COVID-19 vaccine from uh, the various uh, pharmaceutical companies like Pfizer, for example. Obviously, it's important uh, that it's stored at certain temperatures, delivered on time, and blockchain technology helps secure, the, I guess, the uh, the the integrity and security of uh, the data. We've been talking with Dr. David Wang. He's the CTO at uh, MCG and adjunct professor at the Department of Electrical and Computer Engineering over at UBC. Thanks for joining us today. Okay. Thank you, uh, Mike and John. When we come back from the break, more tech to talk here on Get Connected. Stay tuned. You are back with Get Connected. Mike Agarbo here with John Beeler. I'm super excited about this next segment. In 2024, NASA has uh, a goal of uh, launching uh, the Artemis mission to land actual humans on the moon. As you can imagine, there's a lot goes into that. Yes. And it's been a long time. It has. Well, we've uh, got an actual rocket scientist on the line. His name is Derek Daly. He's with the Ames Computational Aerosciences branch of NASA. And uh, today we're going to talk about what computers are involved to make this all happen. They're using a, a number of different pieces of technology from uh, Hewlett Packard Enterprise or HPE. Thanks for joining us today, Derek. Thanks for having me. You're actually based out of California. I, I didn't know NASA had a, uh, a, a branch there. Yeah, that's a common situation. Uh, a lot of people in the Bay Area, they know about Google and Facebook. They don't really realize there's a NASA center right next to all that. Are you in like a deep underground bunker, like half a mile down? Uh, no, not at all. <laughs> we are visible from quite a distance, actually, because we got some very large old Navy buildings, you can see, and a large wind tunnel. So, Derek, can you tell us more about the Artemis mission? Uh, when, when's the first phase of that happening? So, for the Artemis program, we have, we have like, uh, four, three or four missions, like, really kind of set in stone that we're trying to fly. The first one, Artemis 1, is an unmanned test flight of all the new vehicles and components scheduled to happen sometime in 2021 hopefully by the by the end of the year right now all that hardware has been built and is under undergoing a kind of final testing and then within about 12 months of that one we're hoping to fly artemis 2 which will be a similar mission just kind of to go around the moon and come back to earth without landing but that'll have humans on board and then artemis 3 is scheduled for sometime in 2024 and that will be the first the first mission to land humans on the moon since 1972 how many humans 
Uh, I think right now the plan is there'll be four on that mission. And I can't recall if only two will land or all four will land. And is that going to be the same for uh, Artemis 2, uh, the one that's doing the sightseeing tour around around the moon? <laughs> uh, yeah, I believe Artemis 2 is scheduled to have four astronauts, but the crew has not been announced to my knowledge. If I gave you a list of a few people I wanted you to leave on the moon, could that be arranged? <laughs> I think you'd have to ask somebody else for that kind of favor. Uh, and so when they land on the moon, what is the purpose there? Just to show that uh, NASA can do it and this is the, the precursor to further missions like to Mars and what have you? Are they collecting rocks, uh, setting up a base? What, what's happening? Well, that's a really good question. Like, Definitely one of the motivations is getting set up, learning how to do Martian exploration for sure. But this time around, it's going a little bit different from Apollo because we're trying to land near the South Pole where we know there's there's water ice there. So we're definitely trying to take a much bigger step toward sustainability off of Earth. I mean, we won't get there immediately, but this is, this is a key step. We know there's water there. Can we use it? So why is that important? Well, in order to have long-term human exploration, not just you know plant the flag and come back, you need to do as much uh, getting your resources locally as you possibly can because... Taking water to the moon is a very, very heavy proposition. Water is heavy and it's not terribly dense. So you need a lot of volume. That's an issue too. It's just the kind of thing where we're excited. We found so much water, especially near the South Pole of the moon. So this is kind of our opportunity to try and do something with it. Do you have any idea of how they're going to figure that out? Uh, obviously, you've had probes going around that, uh, you know, kind of go try to look into the ground to see this. Like, are they going to, you know, be drilling or they got picks? <laughs> like trying to see if there's ice there how's that all work yeah there's actually a number of uh, unmanned missions currently you know in the planning stages and development stages those are those are actually going to utilize a lot more commercial services than traditional nasa missions so it's called commercial lunar payload services and there's a number of different things kind of the biggest one i think is called viper and there'll be a def- definitely a lot of uh resource hunting on the on the surface of the moon to try to understand that better before we get there for, for Artemis 2, when you're doing a sort of fl- a flyby around, is that something that we might see some very high quality, say, video feed or after the mission, uh, just footage and photos that we maybe we haven't seen before, just for pl- proximity and also the, the sort of advancements in technology since the last time people were really close to the moon? And will Tom Hanks be in that one? <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. I think it's a little bit risky to put a... Uh, uh, public figure like that on board uh, but in terms of imagery I don't think the Artemis 2 is scheduled to get super close to the moon so our unmanned probes probably have higher resolution pictures but you know definitely having uh, the knowledge that it was taken by an astronaut holding a camera will make that a valuable photo mm-hmm. in fact I think the most published photo of all time is just such a photo of the whole earth uh, from I think Apollo 15 and you've definitely seen it everybody has yeah yeah, yeah. That, that is uh, amazing. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what kind of shots uh, they can get there. Uh, Derek, again, you're, you're in charge of the boosters. Do, do the astronauts ever drop by just to make sure that you're keeping on top <laughs> of things? Uh, the astronauts uh, do have like a, a designated like subset who do liaison to different areas of engineering. So there's an astronaut who often like uh, will call into the, the overall launch vehicle engineering review board top level just just to keep you on your toes yeah because you know they 
they gotta they gotta check off on these things before they get on get on the booster. Okay, no kidding. What is your role uh, in in all of this, and, and what type of technology are you using to to figure this all out? So my my primary primary responsibility is working on the aerodynamics of NASA's new launch vehicle called the Space Launch System. It's kind of uh, it inherits a lot of hardware from the space shuttle, but is designed to more accomplish missions like the Saturn V, sending humans to the moon. You can do other a few other very large payload things. And so I work on basically the first eight minutes of the flight, uh, just getting through the atmosphere. Like imagine sticking your hand out the window, driving driving down the highway. There's a lot of force on your hand. Now just multiply that by uh, speeds ranging from standing still on the launch pad to 20 times the speed of sound. And you got to get through all of that. So it's all over quickly compared to the length of the entire mission, but it, it's a really hard phase of flight. I would say a critical <laughs> part of, of the flight. That's so funny. Like just the first eight minutes is, is Derek's job. Well, I never thought of it that way. I mean, we all are familiar with all the movies and, and all the live launches where we see different people at different terminals and their different responsibilities. But I never thought about it in a time of the mission breakdown as well. We're talking with Derek Daly from NASA all about the upcoming Artemis missions and how they're using uh, technology and supercomputers to make that all happen. We're going to continue chatting with him after the break uh, to learn a little bit more. You're listening to Get Connected. Back after this. You are back with Get Connected. Mike Eggerbo here with John Beeler. Fascinating conversation right now. We're talking with Derek Daly over with uh, NASA. He is uh, in charge of the booster rocket uh, for the Artemis uh, missions uh, coming up that will land man back on the moon. Very exciting. And uh, exploring some of the technologies that go into that. So, so what kind of things do you need to be aware of when you are, what are you using some of these supercomputers to, to figure out? Uh, with rockets, it's a little bit different from aircraft, which is you know kind of my other area of specialty. Aircraft, like you know it's flying through the air. Its whole purpose is aerodynamics, right? It has to have lift and you worry about fuel consumption. With rockets and launch vehicles, you're kind of handling a lot of random problems. So the, the biggest scale one is, will the vehicle break? You tend to try to build a launch vehicle basically as light as you possibly can and have it still work. So it's kind of close to, it's hopefully not getting close to breaking, but you know, on the, on the wrong day, you may be like getting close to your limits because anything you go over your limits, it's just extra weight and therefore less payload to space. So, so does the vehicle break is really the biggest question. So I find this interesting. You guys are using uh, something called the uh, the NASA uh, Aitken supercomputer, which is powered by HPE, uh, which, you know, obviously this thing obviously must have intense amounts of computational power. Like, how does this compare back to, you know, the, the 60s and the 70s? Like, what kind of computing power did they have really compared to this? Yeah, that I think about that a lot, actually, because what we have now is, you know, several petaflops, quintillions of calculations per second we can do on the whole computer. Of course, the computer is shared across many missions, not just Artemis, but like climate change kind of studies and lots of other things, aerodynamics. But we have a pretty good chunk that we that we generally use for Artemis and related missions. But if you think about the term supercomputing, super it's basically just whatever the fastest computers in the world currently are. So in my mind, there's been supercomputers since there were computers. But if you go back to Apollo days, really the most expensive computations they could do 
required a lot more manual work and that was doing like trajectories like you know just targeting landing on the moon getting to the right spot that kind of thing and these days all that all that work is mostly done on engineers laptops or an iphone <laughs> i think there's probably an app for that iPhone, it can handle it maybe but the programming would be hard yeah uh, so, okay, so you're responsible for the first eight minutes of this rocket taking off. Um, and obviously, you, you're worried about things breaking. Uh, I guess there's like booster rockets that are separating. And so you got to feed all that information into the supercomputer? Yeah, so you basically, what we end up doing from a very broad stroke is you kind of divide the air around the launch, like this launch vehicle, you know, all the air around it. And you divide that into like points. You have to divide that whole volume into little tetrahedra and cubes, et cetera, things like that. So you can say, what is the velocity? What is the temperature? What is the pressure of the air all around the vehicle at every point? So it's a lot of very similar information, just like pressure, temperature, velocity, but at a lot of points. And you have to solve equations that relate those equations, all those different conditions to each other. So basically, you just you have to do all this very fine detail work to answer the big question of like how much how much force is acting on the launch vehicle as you go through the atmosphere. Do you not have a lot of that information? Obviously, from previous, I mean, NASA has been launching rockets and space shuttles for decades now. Like, is that information already available? Don't you already know a lot of this? This is a kind of thing that tends to vary a lot just by, from small changes to a vehicle. So you really have to do all that work every time. Like, it's like putting a different tail on the end of a of an aircraft, right? It, it's going to have totally different characteristics, even if you have flown the previous one for twenty years. Uh, so we have a lot of experience with rockets in general, as you suggest. So there's a lot of uh, a lot of the initial engineering is done with that experience, but then the, the analysis and certification, we use a lot of computational power, and we also use wind tunnel experiments, which are a major part of it. Nobody has quite gone to the step where you want to totally certify a whole vehicle without wind tunnel certification and wind tunnel testing at this point. So in your group, like, okay, you've got this supercomputer that does the work of many men uh, and women, uh, but how many humans are in your group to make this all work as well? Because obviously it'll take humans to program this and, and get the information. Well, the aerodynamics team for Space Launch System has about 25 people kind of goes up and down a little bit, but that kind of gives you the sense of scale. And some of those folks are splitting their time with other projects also. So it, yeah, a lot, a lot of the computational work is kind of boiled down to maybe 10 people and some of the experimental work and uh, management work, you know, takes up the other set of people. The boundaries aren't super clearly defined, but that gives you a sense of scale. Somehow it all works. I just, I just wonder like, Obviously, you've got, again, the, the HP supercomputer there, but the humans have to know what questions to ask as well. Like, how does that come up? Uh, yeah, definitely there's a lot of human knowledge involved. We're nowhere near the point where you could just take somebody with no training and turn them into a supercomputing analyst. There's a lot of stuff. I, I try to document what I do, just for example, and I'm always just amazed at how many little things I do that I never really thought about as a step in a process before. Yeah, so there's there's kind of like a breakdown trying to get from launch to orbit, as I suggested, those eight minutes. You kind of just uh, are leaning on the, all the previous experience of 50 years of spaceflight, 60 years of spaceflight. And I guess you also have to work 
pretty closely with the guy that's responsible for the nine minute mark as well <laughs> in the launch cycle. Yeah, that's yeah, that's so that's Ed. <laughs> he's, <laughs> he's next door. <laughs> yeah, we definitely interact with our as we call them customers who are other NASA engineers who like are responsible for the structures of the vehicle. That's a, ma- a main one. And just like, where does the vehicle fly? That's trajectory. We'll just call it guidance, navigation, and control. Let's talk about the HPE supercomputers uh, again. These things take up a lot of power though, don't they? Oh, in terms of like literal electrical power. Yeah, it's pretty big. We, we I think we have something like five megawatts for our supercomputing facility. Uh, at NASA Ames, which is is pretty sizable. We, we compare that to like 10,000 order uh, common American homes. Sorry, so the supercomputer side is taking as much power as 10,000 homes? That's uh, that's roughly how I remember it. That's order of magnitude. Not too accurate, but a lot of that... <laughs> that's, that's a uh, lot of electricity. Computer, a lot of that would just go into cooling it off. Yeah. From what I understand, though... Um, with the the HPE computers, they've been able to cut down the amount uh, of electricity and water that they're using to cool it. it. Turns out we have a good climate for this kind of design in California here. Even though it gets pretty hot these days, it used to be cooler summers. It seems like it's getting a lot hotter. But even though it's pretty hot, it's really dry. So basically, you can use evaporative cooling to do most of the work. And we kind of we say we put our computers outside. That's a little exaggerated. They're in like kind of like sheds. <laughs> very carefully designed sheds uh, and it just you don't have to work as hard to cool it off as you would in the inside of a building it's interesting uh, you use a lot of water to, to cool the supercomputers and from some of the stats I'm reading uh, you can actually save uh, using these uh, these new HPE ones uh, over a million gallons of water per day that's like a lot of water <laughs> Yeah, it's it's pretty staggering. That's not like just water that goes down the drain. It's literally evaporated. Wow, that's, that is that is crazy. Uh, Derek, we want to thank you so much for joining us uh, today on uh, the, the program, and uh, good luck with the first eight minutes of that launch. We've been talking with Derek Daly over at NASA about the upcoming Artemis missions, uh, the missions to bring man back to the moon. When we come back from the break, more tech to talk here on Get Connected. Stay tuned. You're back with Get Connected. Don't forget to hit our website, giving away a really cool prize here in January, a YubiKey. This is a special little USB key. It's got uh, both uh, USB-C and Lightning connectors. This plugs into your laptop, uh, tablet, or smartphone, and basically gives you extra security for all your accounts. Uh, This is even better than any passwords or uh, two-factor authentication. This is like the next level. And again, this is called the YubiKey. If you want a chance to win one of these, getconnectedmedia.com. Hit the newsletter tab and enter to win. Don't forget to also listen to our sister show, The App Show. Uh, That is uh, typically on Sundays, depending what city you're living in, uh, or uh, if you're in Toronto, Saturday nights. I want to thank the folks that helped put the show together, including John Beeler, my co-host and producer, and our other producer, Christina, back at the studio. We'll see you again next time.